The truth is that some of the best coaches, guys like Nick Saban, were not great players. Lou Holtz, not a great player. Some of the best coaches spent more time learning the sport as opposed to being a superstar in it. You're listening to the Elevate Podcast, and I'm your host, Robert Glazer. Join me as I talk to world-class performers about how they build their capacity and reach greater heights in leadership, business, and life, and how you can do the same. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. Our quote for today is from John Wooden, and it is, ability may get you to the top, but it takes character to keep you there. My guest today, Don Yeager, knows Coach Wooden well. He's an award-winning keynote speaker, business leadership coach, and the author of 11 New York Times bestselling books, including John Wooden's A Game Plan for Life. Prior to his coaching career, Don was a celebrated journalist covering presidential candidates, Olympic athletes, sports legends, and more. Don, welcome. I'm really excited to have you on the Elevate Podcast. Thank you so much. So It's so great. I loved having you on my podcast. So the idea that I get to now uh, not just learn from you, but to share a little bit will be really exciting. We'll try not to repeat it. We'll make it different for those diehard uh, fans who listen totally. to both, uh, which is probably my mom. And, uh, <laughs> and my you know, wife. So, yeah, exactly. There we go. So. That's right. We got it. That's it. So an enormous amount of your work in draw, uh, involves driving from experiences studying world-class performers in sports. Were you always drawn to sports? Uh, did it play a big role in your childhood? It did. I, I played sports from the earliest, uh, the earliest days I could remember. Had a glove in my hand, a ball in the other hand somewhere. And just, I, I was always riveted by, uh, I grew up in Hawaii. And, um, and it's funny because I didn't fully appreciate that our, uh, our television, you know, our, our showing of the NFL, for example, would uh, would be delayed back then by several hours because it's, it's such a big time difference from the East Coast, for example, six hours. And and so I didn't realize that my father already knew the outcome of these games before I was sitting there riveted and watching them. And he'd walk by and say, oh, man, don't worry about it. The uh, the Eagles are going to lose that game. And I, I just thought my dad was a master. But it was this, uh, the idea that, you know, that the competitiveness, it was the greatest reality show you could ever watch in my mind. Yeah. And I, um, I loved the, the human drama and the, the, um, the highs and the lows and, uh, you know, picking yourself back up after the snot's been knocked out of you. And, uh, so yeah, every bit of sports resonated with me. And then as I grew into leadership, uh, learning, the two worlds really collided. Were there coaches that you remember that sort of were extraordinary in leadership and, and, and conversely, were there ones that maybe you modeled? <laughs> oh, everyone has their anti-leadership models. Do you have memories of, of both having played so many different sports? Uh, I do. Had a had a high school football coach who was a um, who was really great at understanding how to weave 11 people and get them largely to do things. Had a basketball coach who, who wanted to be the high school version of Bobby Knight. So, you know, yeah. and, and thought that yelling, spitting and, you know, uh, and, uh, and throwing things was the way to, to enhance your, uh, your desire as an athlete, which by the way, it doesn't, it, yeah. it doesn't in any form. So yes, I, I had him on on both extremes right there in my own high school experience. So, yeah, I I think we've all watched coaches uh, in from both ends, 
And again, who do you want to give that discretionary energy to? You want to give it to the person that understands how to lead you well. How did the Bobby Knight uh, wannabe team do? Uh, you know, when we had a really great, when we had great players, we did well. When we yeah. didn't have great players, we didn't do well. I mean, it, we, the team never outperformed its talent. And that's, yeah. I think, what you look for a coach to do is to allow a team to outperform its talent. Yeah. And, and although one of my favorite quotes is actually my son, this has become one of his favorite quotes, or he, he, he knows I'm going to say it and he, and he says it, but that is the uh, hard work beats talent when talent doesn't work hard. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Kevin Durant. It's a huge KD quote. Did he say that? He says it often. Quotes so. are so misattributed that I don't yes, trust any of them anymore. In fact, I always use quotes in like the intro chapter to my book and I pull them off these quote sites and I check and then I go to press and the publisher tells me that half of them are wrong. And, and it's really amazing how like if you say it three times, like it's your quote. <laughs> I know. Trust me. I, I, there's some of those quote sites where you could go probably find your own quotes. I found a few of mine on some of those sites going, I didn't say that. Like yeah, I, stole I don't it. want to get sued. I stole it I from John Wooden. Like I didn't, yeah. you know? like I said it, I didn't originate it. Right. right. Exactly. So did your career start out as a, a journalist? Is that right? It, it was. Yeah. That's really kind of all I've ever been is, okay. uh, is just a storyteller. And what did you cover? So, you know, I covered sports for a bit. Then I covered politics for a while because I love politics as well. And I liken the two because uh, in sports and politics, you have a winner and a loser. Uh, you have it's full contact. You know, yeah. uh, there's a time frame for the game to begin and end. Uh, it, it's a finite window. Um, so there were a lot of things I loved about the two. And then I went back to sports at Sports Illustrated. Um, where I was, uh, I was associate editor there and kind of climbed the ranks and got a chance to be involved there for quite some time and uh, retired to now write books mostly about sports. And what was the first like breakthrough story that you covered or your big story? Yeah. So the first, probably the big one for me at Sports Illustrated, it's again, it's an ugly subject, but one that ultimately became so completely important to me and my work was um, I had been called by a parent um, who had read something I'd written about a particular coach to inform me that there were coaches and this particular one was, was one of them who were taking advantage of, of children in, in little league sports. And that at the time, little league sports required no background checks. Mm -hmm. And so we spent over a year kind of investigating, looking at, um, the challenge of the lack of background checks in youth sports. You know, if you wanted to be a school bus driver or work at a daycare center, you had to go through all these processes. You want to adopt a cat, right? Yes. I mean, in some cases. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and yet, if you want to go work on a little league ball field, no, you know, all people welcome. And working with the FBI, we, I, I actually discovered these pockets of places where where bad people were going into youth sports activities yeah. with the sole intention of getting access to children. And so we did this story. It ended up being the cover, the largest selling for a while cover story in the history of sports illustrated about who's coaching your kid. And, you know, and, and the call for background checks led to an appearance on Oprah Winfrey and all these other things. And 37 States, change their laws in the, in the next couple of years. And, and so for me, when people ask me like, what's your, you know, they, everybody wants to think about it being the masters or maybe an yeah. NBA finals. And truthfully 
from an impact place, I would tell you it was that opportunity to tell maybe one of the ugliest stories I've ever told, but to do it in a way that led to changes that I that I'll never be more proud of. So was it like an investigative bombshell piece where you researched and researched and then sort of released it all at once? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I'm talking, you know, I went into prison cells to sit with, you know, men who had been convicted of this crime and uh, to sit and talk to them about what it was that drew them to those fields. And, you know, I mean, it was that kind of research that you just don't want to really yeah. even imagine, but it was, it turned out to be quite powerful. And they were honest with you, it sounded like. Yes. Huh. Yeah. They kind of, I mean, at that stage, you're convicted. You've gotten, a, I mean, you know, the evidence is, uh, the body of evidence was pretty complete. And, and they knew what I was coming for because I was pretty clear. And um, so, yeah, those uh, interviews are ones that are tough to forget. Well, and who was the, the uh, on a brighter side, who was the first famous athlete or coach that you kind of got access to uh, and, and wrote about more extensively? So uh, it probably, uh, it would be um, John Wooden, you know, Coach Wooden was, for those of uh, listeners, you know, might be from a very younger generation. Yeah, I, might you not the know. context. Yeah. Coach was the greatest coach of all time. He coached UCLA basketball to 10 national championships, a record that's double what Mike Krzyzewski has, right? Double what any other coach in history has done. And he did it over a 12-year window, set won seven championships in a row. And so he constantly was reimagining uh, his team every year. It was different talent. And he had to re he built his team around the talent that he had, which again, as I said, the key to a great coach is to get more from your players than their talent should allow. Literally the same as a good leader, right? In an right. organization. Yes. Yeah. Yep. And um and I had the opportunity to work with, um, I, I met him through a series of circumstances. He was mentoring Shaquille O'Neal, who was a young player at the time. And uh, and I set in on one of their sessions, wrote a story about it, and ended up in a relationship with him that allowed me for 12 years to travel to California to spend a day with Coach Wooden every other month and record just uh, hundreds of hours of conversation. And um, And he changed my life. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time, and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing the possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. The Lexus GX comes with available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, best-in-class towing capacity, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. I've seen the new Lexus GX popping up all around my town, and not only does it have the capabilities to take you to new places on and off the road, but it's a great-looking car. The new Lexus GX is ready to raise the bar for you. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and free. LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you identify and hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
Case in point, last year I asked the CEO of a major ski resort how he got his job, and he told me that he saw it on LinkedIn and decided to apply. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. The team at LinkedIn is also constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process easier and quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash practical. That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. I have to imagine, in addition to being a quote machine, that John was just a highlight story machine, like one after another. So I know this is going to be hard, but like, what what's your favorite quote? And what's your favorite story he told you or anecdote or something about John Wooden? So actually, it's not that hard. My favorite quote from him is, make each day your masterpiece, yeah. uh, which is a quote his father had suggested to him was a, should be your goal. And I always, it sounds so simple. And then you realize, what does it mean to create a masterpiece? And you realize it requires, you know, planning and intention and, detail work and all. I mean, to create a masterpiece isn't something that happens by accident. So if you're going to make today a masterpiece, you're going to be ready for a podcast interview. You're going to be, you've thought through the subject, you've listened to previous examples, you've gotten yourself ready for whatever it is you're going to do. And you don't let things happen by accident. And then my favorite story he shared with me had to do with uh, Sidney Wicks, one of his great players who um, Coach Wooden had a rule that when you, if you scored a basket, that your immediate role on the way down the floor was to turn to the player that had passed you the ball and acknowledge them, let them know, let, you know, don't wave to the crowd, don't pose for pictures, acknowledge the person that made it possible for you to score that basket. And so this great player said to Coach Wooden, but what if I'm coming down the court and they're not looking at me? What am I supposed to do? And Coach Wood made it clear. He said, if you're going to acknowledge your teammate, trust me, they'll be looking. Hmm. And you realize that that's one of those things we often don't. So when Coach shared that with me, I remember thinking how often we we don't acknowledge our teammates, right? We don't. We, we expect them to know that we are grateful for them. And um and coach just said, no, I mean, there's the, the way that the team is bound together is through those little details and that willingness to acknowledge each other. And I, I just, as a leader, it, it changed the way I would come back and lead. You know, I, I often kind of think that that's, everybody's here to do what we're here to do. And, but pointing it out, extraordinarily valuable. So did he have a rule for everything? He didn't have a lot of rules. He had <laughs> right. a lot of suggestions. Yeah. And uh, and then how you follow the suggestions determine how much playing time you got. You got. <laughs> uh, how do you think he would do in today's college environment? Uh, it's different. So it's interesting. I, on one hand, I could, I could, you could say it's different. The other thing that I His think... His players stayed, right? I mean, they stayed three and four years, most of them. Correct. Yeah. And But I also think... People long for great leadership, yeah. right? I think people, I think everyone is looking for the possibility to work or be around someone 
who's going to get more from them than, than they could if they just skated along. I think Coach Wooden would be would do well because his his principles are played out today, even at the highest levels. Just they might be said differently, right, with a little yeah. more flair than the way he would have said it. But I think principally, I think he would do well because I think what you find is that A players want to play with A players, right? B players want to play with C players. Yeah. And if you're recruiting and driving A players to your campus, they want to be led. And they want to play with other A players. And I think that's what uh, Coach Wooden mastered. Again, the analogies to leadership are just all over the place, right? I, I, I think an A player as a leader wants people to take their job, right? They, yep. they are willing to equip people to take their job because they'll take the next job. And a B player wants teammates that are worse than them and are not a threat to them. Absolutely. And I think you find that I, I think we can look and there's analogies all over the business landscape of A and B players in leadership roles. Yeah. So the sports and leadership analogies are are numerous. I'd be curious to hear about some of your favorites. And I think there's there's a reason, right? Sports is a in some ways it's run a little better. It's more controlled. There's a couple I've heard over the years that that I really like. The first is from Jack Daly, uh, you know, who you might know. And he he loves to talk about organizations have a playbook and you come in, you learn the playbook. He talks about in sales, you create the playbook, you come in, people learn the playbook in college football. He said, no 18 year old walks into Nick Saban's office and was like, I got my own style. I got my own way of doing it. Like screw the playbook, Nick. Like, you know, when he, and you, when he says it like that, it seems so obvious, but you know, you hear someone coming to an organization, they're like, Oh, I, I've got my own way of doing it. I don't need to follow the formula. I, I, I assume you've, Probably heard Jack give this speech. Thoughts on that? Yeah, <laughs> I love Jack. I, he's one of my favorites, and I mean, gosh, for him to be doing athletically many of the things he Crazy. did late yeah. into his life is just—it's testament to um, to his personal levels of discipline. Really incredible, uh, really incredible guy. But yeah, he's right. I mean, those analogies are uh, to me. It's funny because I do a, a lot, a fair amount of corporate speaking as well, and every once in a while we'll get that. You know, someone's they're they're giving you your post game analysis, right? The yeah. the the way the audience and there's always those random folks who go, "Oh, I'm so over sports analogies." And what kills you in that is that what they're missing is the opportunity to learn. Yeah, even if you don't like sports, the analogies hold. I, yes. I mean, these are these are controlled experiments in teams year after year after year. Winning is clear. Performance is clear. <laughs> Good and bad is clear. Like it's kind of more of a laboratory experiment on it, right? But unfortunately, some people want to reduce it to, "Oh, I hate sports." Yeah, I see that a lot, and and I see people throw it out uh, without wanting to look at the. I think there's some gender lines that fall on, act on it. Look, I just I was at the Red Sox game last night, and wow. you know, was kind of like thinking about. Now, Alex Kors had some interesting, you know, stuff go down, but it's the same team as last year. I mean, they yeah. got Chris Sale back, but they didn't make any play. They were last place last year. I mean, you want to just talk about changing the manager, changing the culture. I mean, there's not really any major personnel that they moved from one go from last to ALCS other than bringing him back, who the first time he came in, he had an incredible run and then he left and it all fell apart. So, right. I, yeah. And, and there's just a connective piece there, right? Yeah. I mean, you see that there's kind of this, there's a generation of leaders right now in sports that are that are a little more connected through 
yeah. age and other things with with some of the athletes. You know, it's not universal. It's not. I mean, Bill Belichick and Pete Carroll yeah. are still seventy, are nearly both seventy years old. Um, totally opposite leadership styles, even right. though they're both sport. I mean, literally diametrically opposed, right? Correct. They both had success with them, and and that's I think the beauty of looking at leadership for lessons. Yeah, is that we shouldn't ever look at any one of them and say, I want to be that. What I should want to do is I want to understand that so that I can develop my personal leadership style and grow from, uh, you know, I'm never going to be any one of those folks, but I've, I'm always tweaking my style based upon what I'm learning from other people. Yeah. And it occurred to me, I, I do, as I said this, why I think it, they are good experiments. I, and I don't mean this in winning and losing, like not everything's about winning and losing, but you know, Jack talks about the scoreboard sports clearly have, you know, you know what the goal is, you know, the scoreboard, you know, a lot of those things. I think in companies, sometimes you don't know if they're winning or losing. It takes a few years to see how much damage has been done by poor leadership or good leadership. I, I think it's just, so it's true. more obvious in, in sport. You just, you see it, you know, day to day on the field. Yeah, that's true. But I also think, so I happen to live in, Tallahassee, Florida, right? Where the, the hometown team is yeah. the Florida State University Seminoles. So there was a football, you know, a few years ago, they won the national championship and their coach at the time was unhappy about different things, going through some personal turmoil. Um, and in many ways, I mean, it, there's been an acknowledgement. He kind of stopped recruiting because he knew he was going to be leaving. Now it took him two years to find the job he would leave to. But in, in the two years, even though he was there, the damage done lives on. And so to your point, sometimes you're basking in a glow of whatever it might be. Yeah. And you you miss that the little detail work still has to be done. I mean, that's the beauty of a Nick Saban, right? Wins a championship and the next morning he's on, he's uh, he's turning down morning TV shows because he's on yeah. recruiting calls, right? It, it's crazy. That was last year. Yeah. We're on, what was it? We're on to we're, Cincinnati. We're on to Buffalo or Cincinnati or yeah, whatever it is. Yeah. yeah. Whatever, <laughs> whoever that line was, that was great. Hey, Elevate listeners. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify is the partner you need to keep the cash register ringing for your e-commerce business. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading platforms. I advise a lot of companies in the e-commerce space, and almost all of them have migrated to Shopify. And as a buyer, what I love about buying from Shopify-enabled sites is that they already know who I am, and I don't have to create a new account or enter all my payment info the ShopPay service makes it faster and easier to buy, which surely helps with conversions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com elevate, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com elevate now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash elevate. So the other analogy we were chatting about before the call, and honestly, so we, you know, we have a develop from within philosophy in our organization. So we are putting a lot of new managers out there. And 
let's be honest, new managers aren't often great managers because they don't have a lot of experience and they are switching from being an individual contributor to someone who gets the credit for how other people do. And, and delegation is, is one of the hardest things. And this is the analogy I do bring up a, a lot, which is, I think is one of my favorites from sports. And I'll ask you for the one that's missing. Like the coach in sports never walks into the court and takes the balls out of her hand and shoots it or, or goes in and catches the, like they just, they can't, the, the coach in leadership can cross that line all the time. They probably shouldn't, but they just go take the ball and, and take the shot. And I, I think that is an instructive thing for, again, how do you teach someone how to do that without touching the ball during the game? Obviously you can do it in, in practice. How, how many leaders could benefit from, you know, really understanding that, that approach um, because it's just, yeah. Or parents, I would say. All of us. Yeah. All of us could, because the truth is many of us, I mean, ultimately as a leader, sometimes you look, you're frustrated, you realize you were elevated because you were probably good at the level you're now trying to coach, right? Yeah. And so you're thinking, gosh, the easiest thing is just for me to go take it over and do it myself. And uh, that may be the easiest thing for the short term. It's the worst thing for the long term. You're not getting anything done. But to carry your analogy just a half step forward, yeah. some of the worst coaches in the history of sports were some of the greatest players, Magic Johnson, Isaiah Thomas. Um, I mean, even as Michael Jordan played into his role there, the truth is that some of the best coaches, guys like Nick Saban, were not great players. Lou Holtz, not a great player. Some of the best coaches spent more time learning the sport as opposed to being a superstar in it. So when we take superstar salespeople, we try to make them a new sales manager. Yes, it's really important that we that we try to separate them a little bit from don't go in and take over, but try to think through how can you coach people to do the things you once did. And um, coaching people how to coach is uh, is a real need, I think, in business right now. Yeah, Adam Grant wrote something similar to what you're saying. He was talking, I didn't agree with half his premise. He was trying to say teachers teachers make better doers, but doers don't make better teachers. And I was like, well, that's uh, the argument. You got it one side or the other, right? I, I haven't seen a lot of people come out of the classroom. But Adam Grant's a teacher. So come on, let's right, go right, But I haven't seen a lot of people come out of the classroom to you know lead world-renowned organizations. So and he's very data-driven. I, and I love Adam and I love Adam's work, but I didn't agree with that side of it. But the other side, and I think it's analogous to what you're saying, one of the reasons he said he had a diving coach. And the diving coach that was like a gold metal diver. He's like, well, how do you do the twist? He's like, you just go like, just the guy had so much talent that he just was like, you just do it. Right. And the other guy would, you know, break the mechanics down and explain how to do it and, and knew how to, and knew how to teach it. Um, and, and, and I, it's, it's very similar to what you were saying. He's saying sometimes it's just, it's not even they're just too much talent that they just, it's too natural to them. They don't know how to I felt the same when I went. I had, I had to go take my, you know, sixteen-year-old daughter, teach her to drive, and I was like, I got to break this down. It's so I hadn't thought about like where do you position your foot and how. Like the first part for me was like going back and pulling it off autopilot and deconstructing it to teach her. Yes, absolutely. But there, I think those are some really great lessons, and and that the leaders in any organization, including one that's kind of growing their own leaders, like you're talking about is uh, you know is teaching them how to deconstruct it a little bit. Well, let me ask you the flip side of this because I've heard different opinions on this. I have one, but I could be convinced either way. Maybe it's the same thing, maybe it's different. As you said, sometimes the 
often the best coach, almost every time the best coach was not the best player. Maybe they understood the game or maybe they understood the mechanics or something like that. Does that hold over in business coaching? Because there's there's so many business coaches these days. And granted, there's some good coaches. I, I tend to resonate with a lot of the mentor coaches or done it. There's some people who've learned how to be great coaches that haven't been titans of business. But there's also just this expansive whole field of people who have and they failed at something and now they're teaching others how to do it. And, and I, I'm, I, you can convince me of either argument with what you just said, and maybe it's a little bit of both, but I, I like generally, if you'd be like, look in business and looking for a coach or a mentor, I, I would be inclined for someone, you know, who had actually had success in what it was they right. were teaching me. Show me you've met a PNL. Right. right. But in sports, you're saying that's not necessarily the case. So what's your thought on that? I think it can be. I mean, yeah. again, I, I think Larry Bird was a pretty good coach, yeah. right? I mean, you know, but Larry Bird was a, uh, he was, he didn't lean completely on his physical gifts, right? Yeah. I mean, there was grit and there was, there was work and there was, there was, um, yeah. uh, understanding the mind was better than his just physical takeoff, right? Uh, of a Magic Johnson, for example. Now, Magic turned into a pretty good business leader. He understood how to make deals, how to make partnerships, yeah. how to grow organizations and inspire people. So I think, you know, there's something to be learned from, from all angles of this. But I will tell you from a business coach, again, I look and I think, what is it that they need? If they, what they need is instruction in how to be better at the at the the T's and C's, the putting it together, right of of a uh, organizational dynamic, there are people you should go get. But if you're trying to learn how, how to grow a group together, I think you don't have to go find somebody that's built a billion dollar organization to do that. I think you could look for people who understand how to put people together and get them to do more um, and do more with less. But would you want them to have success doing that or just studied others that had success doing that? It's a good question. I, I, I think there are roles for both players in that. I know that sounds, and, and part of that is because I, I look at it and I think some of the people I've learned from, learned the most from uh, are people who maybe didn't have a, a ton of success, but what they, what they understood was they understood why, right? Yeah. And if they can help me, I mean, the best money to play with is someone else's money, right? Yeah. <laughs> and so if I can play with someone else's experience, that's great for me too. It shortens my, my distance that I have to travel. So I'm always looking for those who can help me shorten the distance between where I am and where I want to go. So what, what sports analogies am I missing that would be helpful for business leaders? Well, I think the other one that's really important is recruiting for culture, right? Is it the um, Michigan softball coach who has that quote? Yeah, there's a handful of them. But I, I'm working on a book right now, for example, with the the basketball coach at Baylor that just won the national championship a year ago. He didn't do it with the best talent, right? They just they created a culture there that really does inspire. I mean, where each they had two players uh, in the finals finalists for the national defensive player of the year. And one of those players got chosen. Well, internally the coaches were trying to figure out how do we do this? One of your players got told no. Right. Yeah. And when they brought the two players in the player who got told no said, coach, I'd like to be the one to present it 
to the guy who won it, right? Now, how often do you find that yeah. among a group of young people? Well, you, you do it only because the culture's right. And so they're not getting the best talent in the world. Uh, they often, you know, have the 10th or 15th or 20th best recruiting class, but they're constantly competitive because once there, people are kind of growing into the culture. So it's not recruiting the best talent because that's kind of easy in this day and age because you can it's go to Alabama. Go, right, exactly. <laughs> but you have to recruit the best talent that fits your culture. Yeah. And that's hard to do because you have to understand what fits. And there are a lot of people that don't really know what fit looks like in their organization. So as an analogy, I think that's one of the things that I've seen from really great leaders in sports that I think can translate into business. First off, before you go to recruit, understand what really works within your team. And most of us don't. Most of us just think everybody's uber talented. Well, no, there's actually, there's there's a dynamic. And every time you add someone or or take someone away, the dynamic changes. So how are you trying to make sure that you're keeping the dynamic working in the right direction? Recruiting is such an important part of that. And it only, I mean, heck, we use the example of the Florida State coach. It only takes one recruiting cycle, if you would, to defeat many years of excellence. And so you know, the constant work in that space is a huge analogy between sports and business. Well, if you haven't heard the quote from, I think it's the Michigan women's softball coach. Uh, it's a great one. You'll like it. I think she said, if I miss on the wrong recruit, she beats me twice a season. On the right recruit, she beats me twice a season. If I take the wrong recruit, she beats me every day. <laughs> oh, that's a great line. Yeah. Like, I'm writing that down. I, get that one. I was going to say, if you hadn't heard that, it's going into one of your books. Awesome. It's on my, it would be on my quote list. Uh, you'll, you'll read it in a few days here. So you talked about cultural fit. And I think there's a bunch of people these days that are, are going after that word. And I think it might be a synonym issue, right? They're saying, well, cultural fit, you're, then you're looking for this whole All these homogeneous or whatever, yeah, right? group of, yeah. and, and I, I've, I don't believe that's the case. I certainly think Not there are places like that, but I think, look, in any group uh, that is out there for a purpose, you need to have some shared values in order for that to work. I don't think that means that everyone needs to be a carbon copy or the same. Totally agree. And I think, I think maybe that's another thing I love about sports, right? Is that truly in a, in a great sports atmosphere, it is colorblind, right? You, I don't care what color you are. I don't care what your orientation is. Can you help me win? Right. Yeah. Is the only question I'm trying to figure out. Can you and I together be better than, than, than the two of us should be? Uh, and that is, I, that to me, when I, you know, Chevron used to use me quite often uh, in the speaking in their diversity and inclusion speeches in area. And I thought you're bringing in a white guy to speak <laughs> in diversity and inclusion, but it was because my topic was yeah. sports, which was the place where all boundaries are crossed in, in the collective effort to be successful. And they wanted to learn more about that. So I was actually in a, a discussion today, a pretty deep discussion with some people on, on race. And someone actually brought that up that if you look at where things integrated quickest, it, it is in sports because it is, it is merit, right? It is totally merit based. <laughs> merit based. Yeah. Yep. It's not who got the promotion and who didn't get the promotion. I mean, they're starting and not starting, but you either, you put up the 
score. You didn't put up the points. If it's basketball, you didn't put up the points. Right. Yeah. And and it's there for all to see, right? Yeah. You know, there's not little hidden deals in the back. I mean, you know, you can either run or you can't, right? You either. Yeah, and sales uh, is probably the place in most organizations that is most objective in that way too, in terms of, you know, people are given the same objective, the same scorecard. It's measurable. I think people struggle in other areas with more subjective criteria. I agree. But it's one of those places that I've loved as much as anything about sports that, you know, I've, I'm sure it exists. I'm sure there's plenty of places, but in much of my experience, I've never felt like I was dealing in an environment where fit meant, Ooh, there's a hidden word in that, you know, yeah. fit means are, are you complimentary? Uh, are, are you a complimentary piece of the pieces that we have? And I think that that's not, I, I know what you're, of which you speak because I've heard that yeah. uh, that reaction a few times. I disagree wholeheartedly. I, I think it comes from the broy Silicon Valley uh, version of culture fit, right? Which right. is how do we find people that <laughs> look drink, and think, that can drink yeah. with us, <laughs> yeah. who can who will who will go to the same clubs we do, etc., yeah. cetera, etc. Cetera. But if yeah. you got to have a a sh- agreement around some shared principles uh, in any right. any I think relationship or organization and. You know, I always say like, you know, for an example, like, let's say people are starting some sort of group around religion, whatever religion is, right? And they're meeting every week. Yeah, they want diversity of opinion, but they probably don't want someone in that group who is anti that religion. Right. <laughs> it's just not, yeah. it's not the purpose yeah. of that group, right? Right. <laughs> so, you know, in a larger context, it'd be great, but that's not what they're looking for in that organization. Yeah. No, I'm I'm with you, but I I understand the you know the dog whistle words that that some people yep. are looking for, and and I I know that fit is sometimes one. I argue that it's I think there's a a real lesson there that that doesn't you know meet any of of the critical criteria. Well, as I know, so one of your earliest books was a pretty heavy assignment, uh, writing about Walter Payton's life as he was mm-hmm. pretty close to to death. What? What did you learn from him as you spent my final months kind of studying him and, and writing his story? So, you know, he was my hero. I, I mean, literally, I was in high school worshiping Walter Payton. Like, I wanted to be... see his jersey. Uh, up yeah, there. that's yeah. it right there. Yeah. <laughs> and so the to be given the opportunity to be invited by Walter to live with him for the last few weeks of his last 10 weeks of his life was extraordinary. It was... Um, uh, what I grew to realize was that even your heroes, uh, you know, they they struggle and they, you know, a lot of times we look at people on a pedestal and we assume they've lived a life without challenge. We assume they've lived the life we wish we could live. We miss all that they fought through and what they're even might be fighting through today to get some of what we see them for. Walter was in that really unique place. He knew he was going to pass before the book was going to run, be finished. That's a heavy burden to carry on you. I mean, yes. yeah, <laughs> no. And he made sure I knew it too. Yeah. Right. You know, it, like it wasn't talk like, about high expectations, right? Yeah. You only get one shot at this. There's no second take. I, I mean, I mean, and I'll share with you, for example, one day our conversation was, um, Uh, He had Walter's daughter was 13 at the time, Brittany. And I remember saying to him one day, Walter, you know, you've NFL MVP, 
Super Bowl champion, every honor and accolade you could heap upon a human you have, right? If you could trade all of that for one day in the future, what would that day be? And he didn't hesitate. And he looked at me and he said, I'd give it all to walk my daughter down the aisle. Hmm. Right. And we spent the next 30 minutes talking about what he could imagine that day being right to walk his daughter down the aisle. He dies. I'm in the possession of this content. Now I could have put that in the book, but it would have been totally wrong. Right. Would have been so horrible for a 13 year old girl to read that. That's what her father was thinking about. Doesn't make the book. But years later, Brittany's getting married and she invites me to come to the wedding. Oh man. And I asked her if I could come to Chicago a couple of weeks in advance. And I shared with her what her father had said. And it was just awesome. Like, you know, it was that place where you get to go and you get to realize, man, you know, sometimes and she could you, appreciate it more at that point in her life. Absolutely. So yes, the burden was big. Walter was trusting. And I, I feel like I kind of lived to the, to the challenge because I think I honored him properly in the way that we told the story warts and all. I mean, there's ugliness in the story yeah. of Walter's challenges. So the opportunity to be there, it just taught me so much about where we put people and what the real story is and how done well, good interviewing, good work can actually help people share with others challenges they might not otherwise express. When you left it out of the book, did you have it in the back of your mind that you might do that? No, no, not at all. It just literally was out of the book because as I got and I was thinking about, you know, what do you, how do I write? I just realized what would it be like to be a 13 year old girl yeah. and read that? And I just couldn't, just couldn't do it. And it wasn't until years later when, you know, she was getting married that I thought about Gosh, I should go resurrect that and, and share it with her, which was really cool. That's an incredible story. Yeah. So what's a personal or professional mistake that you've made? This could be singular or plural, and it could be personal or professional, so it's multivariant, that, that you think you've learned the most from. I would say um, the mistake I think I've learned the most from was a realization early in my career when I was in too great a hurry. Like I was constantly like... And, and titles meant everything to me. Like I wanted a bigger title. I wanted to be known for more. And I rushed things. Like I did things fast. I, I, I didn't appreciate successes. And again, I'm, you know, we're talking about not reveling in your success, like kind of moving forward. But I didn't appreciate things because I just wanted more and I wanted it too fast. And in that process, I mean, I, I definitely know I stepped on toes. I, I mean, I, a couple of years ago, I spent a, a few days thinking through this exact topic and making phone calls to some people mm -hmm. whose toes I know I stepped on and who I let down in different places just to say, look, I'm a little older now. I'm a little more mature. I realize what I did and I apologize. And um, I would love to never have had to make those phone calls. But, but you made them. Most people would never make them. So, um, yeah, that's... Uh... That'd be a great little, let's think about that as a Friday forward. That'd be a nice little experiment to try, try one of those a week. I've heard similar things. I think it's pretty, it's cathartic for people. Huh. It was for me. 
you know, and, and I think, you know, there were a couple who didn't initially take my phone call because I had treated them so poorly. Uh, And I had to convince them of good intention that this wasn't for any reason. And, you know, uh, it was just, it was me fixing me. Right. And if they accepted the apology or not, I was okay with that because I just needed to do it. And so uh, those are the things I think I wish I, you know, that's probably, that, that may not be the answer that makes most sense, but it's the answer that, that I would, I would throw out there. That's your answer. So Don, where can people learn more about you and your work? Uh, easiest place is just um, donyeager.com. It's uh, uh, the last name is Y-A-E-G-E-R, but I own the spelling of every other way you could misspell my last name. I, I bought them all on the on, on website <laughs> on, uh, so I can allow people to butcher my name and still find me. Uh, but yeah, donyeager.com is that, is that place. All right, Don. Well, thanks for joining us. Uh, you're a fantastic storyteller and I loved hearing more about your stories and some of uh, your career and some of these stories. Well, it was so great. I, I appreciate it. And I'm grateful that our paths crossed in this way and that we, uh, I'm looking forward to growing together with you. Yeah. But I, you got, I know you got more stories to share, so we'll have to, we'll have to I'll try not to cry. I'll try not to cry the next time. <laughs> I, tell you I think you might've used your best material there. Yeah. You know, that was, the, that was a good one. I've hardly, I think I've only shared that story a couple, three times. It's pretty good. Yeah. yeah. The, the motion is raw. I, I, you know, I, I remember, um, you know, Travis Roy, who, who I think passed away last year, I, I saw him speak a couple of times and, you know, it was his story, but every time he told, the story it was like it was happening for the first time all the emotion everything and 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 you really you really felt it and he just he just missed playing hockey so much it was it was powerful to to hear him speak well it is uh i mean that's the beauty i think of good storytelling is that it it hopefully touches a chord in yeah and both in the in the teller and the listener so if it's it's my favorite thing thank you don To our listeners, thanks for tuning into the Elevate podcast today. We'll include links to Don and his work and his numerous books. Uh, So you can also find him on Amazon where he seems to have all the books on the detailed episode page at robertglazer.com. Quick favor, if you enjoyed today's episode or you listen to the Elevate podcast in general, I'd really appreciate if you could leave us a review as it helps new users discover the show. If you're listening an Apple podcast, just select the library icon, click on Elevate and scroll down to leave a rating or review. Thank you again for your support. Until next time, keep elevating. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. 
Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's going to push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the Podcast Princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam, on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.